Now, this text is particularly apropos to the Lenten season because the very reason that Lent is 40 days long is because Jesus spent 40 days fasting in the wilderness, 40 days in prayer, 40 days being tempted of the devil. And of course, when we read a text like this, it raises all sorts of theological questions, not the least of which is, if Jesus is God, how can he be tempted? I remember this was a common uh, debate in Bible college and seminary, uh, the impeccability of Christ. Could he have sinned or not? I I had a uh, professor that I would continually be arguing and debating with, and then a couple years after I graduated, I realized he was right Never told him, though. I mean, what good would that do? But 40 days of of being tempted by Satan is, I mean, it's as clear as day here. It it is very much an important milestone in the ministry of Jesus. And perhaps the question that we are raising here should not be, how can he be tempted if he is God? But how could he not be tempted if he is man? And all of these things are rather difficult for us to suss out. And it even took the church centuries as they began hashing out the the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the dual nature of Christ to come to a definitive point, a kind of exhaustive statement on this. It was 451 at the Council of Chalcedon where we finally have these canons which tell us how to think about Jesus' divinity and humanity. Let me read you a little excerpt, and you've got to stick with me here. We then... Following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhood and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and body, coessential with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the bearer of God, according to the manhood. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparately. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same God and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. You got that? Yeah. So there's an awful lot here if we want to dig very deep. But the, the how and what it means For Jesus is one discussion. I think what we may want to focus on this morning is what does it mean for us that Jesus was tempted and that he withstood the temptation? He had to be tempted. We see in Hebrews 4, there is a couple of passages early in Hebrews. Actually, Hebrews 2.17 tells us of the necessity of Jesus' temptation. When we read, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to become us like us in every respect, one of us, so that he could be our priest. And then he continues in Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So this was part of God's design, that Jesus, after his baptism, would be tempted in the wilderness. It's not a mistake It's not an accident. Oh, no, he found me. What am I going to do? 
No, this is ordained by God. And it's clear when we look at the different accounts, the three uh, synoptic Gospels, they all have this story. Two of them, Matthew and Luke, say that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Mark, in his true urgent fashion, says immediately the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. The word there in the Greek is ekbalo. Ek means out, balo means to throw. Like he kicked him out into the wilderness. He, he drove him out. It's the same word used when Jesus drives demons out of possessed people. Or when Jesus makes a cord out of ropes and he drives the money changers out of the temple courts. This is something that the Spirit says has to happen. And I think we also want to then realize that this is not Jesus playing defense. This is Jesus on offense. The Spirit drives him out, leads him out, and stays with him. And Jesus is in the Spirit. We often teach this. I've often heard it presented and seen it portrayed as Jesus wanted to have a nice, quiet retreat to start his ministry. He's been baptized. He needs time to reflect. But, oop, the devil found me. And now I have a fight on my hands. No, Jesus went out to find the devil. To go one-on-one, this is, this is the boss fight here. This is the, the, the early on, and then we're going to have it again, the climax later. But this is like, remember the scene in Braveheart when the armies are lined up and the, the leaders go to kind of parlay and, and one of uh, William Wallace's lieutenants says to him, where are you going? And he says, I'm going to pick a fight. This is not something that you and I ought to imitate. Yes, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We should be Christ-like. But things that are specific to Christ's calling that he did on our behalf, you don't need to do. You don't need to die on the cross for the sins of the world in order to imitate Christ. And you don't need to go and try and pick a fight with the devil to show that you can overcome temptation. In fact, we find that we flee temptation and flee to the cross because Jesus already won this battle on our behalf. This is perhaps the beginning of what Jesus is talking about when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Satan now cast to the earth, the dragon cast down, and a third of the stars with him. And of course, right before this passage in, in Luke 3, we see the genealogy of Christ. It goes all the way back, not just to Moses, not just to Abraham, but to Adam. And that's important. Because here, as he is tempted, Jesus is doing what Adam could not. Adam was tempted and fell. Jesus is tempted and stands. He is the second Adam, as we heard Steve read to us from Romans. And just like in one Adam, one, Adam just means man, by the way, in Hebrew, Adam, in one man all fell, so now in one man as our head we can all be saved. And that's also why it's so important where this happens. That it happens in the Midbar, the wilderness, the wasteland. Why would that be the case? Well, it's the opposite of where Adam was tempted. We actually know with some certainty about where this went down. You, you see what side of the Jordan Jesus is on. He goes out into the wilderness. This is a kind of flat wilderness in between the Dead Sea and the hill country. It has a particular name in Hebrew. It's Yeshimon, which means literally the devastation or the wasteland. If this was a movie, there would be the establishing shot where in the foreground there'd be the bleached white skull of some poor head of cattle that wandered too far out and just died because it's the devastation. It's the wasteland. It's the kind of place where if your radiator hose goes out while you're driving through, that's all she wrote. 
that you're, you're going to be the, the next school there, next to the, next to the cow. Okay, now, now, why is it that he is not tempted in a lush garden? Like, I mean, he is tempted later in the Garden of Gethsemane. But here, in this definitive contest, why is it that he's in the wilderness? Why is it that he's in the desert? Well, what turns a perfect, lush, paradise garden into a wasteland? The curse of sin. And so, where Adam failed and brought the curse that, that says thorns and thistles and sweat of the brow, and, and life becomes stark emptiness, now Jesus goes out to reclaim it. He's reversing the curse slowly through his ministry as the kingdom comes. And I can imagine that the enemy would think this gives him the upper hand, right? Think about every advantage that Adam had over Jesus, and now Jesus is at the disadvantage from the outside observer's point of view. Adam was full when he was tempted. There's no reason to believe there was much more than an hour or so since he'd eaten. He's surrounded by all the best produce. Undoubtedly, avocados that never get brown. That's the dream. People tell me, you know, I hear people talk about what, what's the new earth going to be like. I hope I can fly. I'm like, I, don't, I just want to know where the avocados are that are always ready to eat. Adam is just surrounded and full and ready. Not so with Jesus. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. He has nothing surrounding him, not all the different trees of produce known to man. Rather, he's surrounded by sand. And it's a wonderful dad joke to say, why can't you starve to death in the desert? Have I told you that one, Calvin? Because you can eat all the sandwiches there. But even though that's a great pun, it's not true. You can't eat the sandwiches there. Jesus is in the midst of stark nothingness, and he is hungry. He is alone, utterly alone. Adam was with his helpmate. They were made to complement one another and hold each other up. Now, they don't in this case. They kind of uh, bring each other down and, and enable each other in this temptation. But ideally, he has someone there, and, and he's there for her. His wonderful, supportive, naked wife. There's 10,000 better things they could be doing than talking to this serpent. They could be saying, hey, did we miss some of the animals? Well, got to come up with a better name, work on some topiaries, further culture as God had commanded. But no, here they are, and still they fall. And yet Jesus has all of these things against him. He's not, he's not got any help. He's alone, he's hungry, and he is surrounded by nothing but wasteland. And if Satan thinks that this will give him any advantage... He has no idea who he is really dealing with. Yes, Jesus had not eaten in 40 days. That's not completely unprecedented in the Bible, by the way. Moses, when he was up on the mountain receiving the law for 40 days and 40 nights, he ate nothing, he drank nothing. He was in God's presence and God sustained him. And that is the idea behind fasting, by the way, to remind us that it's God who sustains us. Whether you're eating and drinking and well-fed, God sustains you, or whether you're not, God is sustaining you, and, and it's an exercise of denying yourself. And we see here, Jesus will teach, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. He doesn't just teach that, he lives it, he models it for us. And make no mistake, it's clear from the text, Jesus is tempted the whole time. Not just at the very end, that's when the climax comes, because Jesus is at his weakest in the flesh, but th this whole time is a time of of temptation. But the real thing that we read about, the real contest, this showdown in the wasteland happens at the end of the 40 days. 
There's this great bit of understatement, and understatement can be a wonderful rhetorical device. He ate nothing for the 40 days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. If I don't eat for like three hours, I will say, I'm starving, which is a dumb thing to say, but I'll say it. Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days, and he was hungry. And this the enemy sees as his great opportunity, because in the words of St. Anselm, he's a punk, right? He, he will come at you when you are at your weakest, not when you are full of strength and, and happy in the Lord and, and sustained by him. No, he comes when you're depressed, dejected, frazzled, stressed, broken. In, in addiction and recovery circles, they often use the acronym HALT, H-A-L-T. Watch out for when you're hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And we could say the same thing about this is when the enemy comes. When you are at your weakest, he has no honor. And so he comes when Jesus is most likely to fall by his estimation. And the first temptation comes in verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now I've heard this preached and taught, and, and, and I know many people assume that what's going on here is Satan is sort of calling Jesus out. You're not really the Son of God. If you are, prove it. If you're really the Son of God, which is ridiculous, do this amazing, miraculous thing. That's not what's going on here, and we know because of the devil's grammar. Stay with me, and you're going to want to tune me out. Don't. In fact, you may want to actually write a note in the margin of your Bible, because this is helpful in understanding both what's going on with Jesus and how it applies to our lives. In the Greek, there are four ways to make a conditional statement. That's an if-then statement. And they are very specific. And there is a way to say, I don't believe you're the Son of God, but if you are, and we both know you're not, then do this. It expects a negative result, a negative to the if. There's a way that's kind of open. I'm not sure. Let's find out. If it's this, then this. And this is what's called a first-class conditional. I'll say it again because it's so important. A first-class conditional, which means it expects that the if is true. In fact, some translations say, since you are the Son of God. Maybe that's going a little too far. Maybe we should say, assuming you are the Son of God. I'm not going to argue that with you, but if you are the Son of God, since you are the Son of God, why would you be hungry? That's just stupid. You have, you, you could, you could turn these stones into loaves of bread. He's, he's pushing Jesus toward acting independently of the Father and just flying in the face of the submission that he has to the will of the Father. It may be, it seem to you like a completely rando, weird thing for him to say, turn stones into loaves of bread, but recognize that in that part of the world, the stones out in the desert, in the wilderness, they're round, they're about the same size and color as the kinds of loaves of bread that people ate every single day. It wasn't that much of a stretch for someone who hadn't eaten in a long time to look at those and go, hmm, that looks pretty good. You or I might be tempted if we were in this wilderness after a time without eating, to go, oh, I got an idea. Only difference is Jesus could actually do it. Right? I mean, in cartoons, two guys are stranded on a desert island, and, and one of them sees the other guy's head turn into a sandwich or something. So, you know, we know what we're talking about here, that, that Jesus looked there, and, and the desire that he felt, Satan piggybacks. He will use the world from without, and the flesh from within. Of course, we have the sin nature that Christ did not inherit 
but still there was the weakness of the flesh itself, that he was hungry. It's interesting to me, of course, that the first temptation that came to Adam in the garden was eat this thing you're not supposed to, and the first attempt at uh, tempting Jesus is eat this thing that would not be right. Apparently, a way to a man's heart truly is through his stomach. But this is what we call the lust of the flesh. That, that, that we, as, as those who are inheritors of Adam's sin nature, though born with original sin, have to be careful of our flesh all the time. It's with you, it's in you, it's trying to keep on living, even as we mortify it, meaning put it to death day after day. Richard Sibbs, a great Puritan writer, wrote this, This flesh of mine is ready to betray me into the hands of the world and of the devil. Therefore, there must be a marvelous strong guard. I must not suffer my affections to rove. Jesus would not suffer his to rove either. And you might say, what would be the big deal if he did this? He created those stones. He's hungry. He has every right to eat. Why couldn't he say, good idea, now get lost and just do it and be full? Well, it is a big deal. Because if Jesus won't stand under this temptation, why would we imagine that he would stand in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's sweating blood and thinking about the the, the cup of judgment he will have to drink the next day. Why would we think that he would stand under any temptation as he's hanging on the cross and doesn't have to remain on the cross and dying for the sin of the world? This is exactly what Satan is pushing for. Don't deny yourself. Just affirm it. Affirm yourself. Don't deny yourself. Look out for number one. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You're number one. Live a little. You've got to live. We've all got to live. And so I think you'd be justified and turn these stones into loaves of bread. It's because it seems so innocent that it is so devious and so dangerous. Satan is coming in a very devious and serpent-like way. In Scripture, we see two simultaneous strategies that Satan has. Peter says the devil stalks about like a roaring lion, deciding whom he will devour. There's the full frontal attack. When a lion comes at you, there's not much you can do unless you have something in your back pocket, which we do in Christ. But then there's also the serpent, which is the slithering, seductive, confuse you and, and seduce you into doing what I want you to do. He's trying that one here with Christ. Then later at the cross, he tries the lion attack and they both fail. Never a good idea to try and outlion the lion of Judah. Jesus' response is to quote scripture at him. And by the way, all of these three responses are like a master's class in living out Ephesians 6, which is the one about the armor of God. Jesus is wearing all the defensive armor, righteousness, peace, salvation, faith, and he wields the sword of the Spirit, the offensive weapon, and he wields it ruthlessly at the enemy. And so he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Later on, Jesus will be uh, with the woman at the well, talking to her and bringing her to faith. And his disciples will come back in. They've been off buying food because they're all hungry. They offer him food, and he says, I'm good. I have food you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus, in that moment, is, is manifesting and, and demonstrating for us that if we're well-fed, it's still God who sustains us. When Moses was not well-fed at all, but up on the mountain with God, it was God who sustains him. And, and when they were out in the wilderness, 
And the, the manna was coming down. They trusted, yeah, we'll have something to eat because it will be God who sustains us. By the way, that's the context of this passage from Deuteronomy 8. The manna coming down in the wilderness. The place where Israel failed for 40 years, time and time and time again. Jesus, when he is tested here for 40 days, does not fail. Showing that he is the true Israel. And you go, wait a minute, he's the second Adam, he's like a better Moses, he's the true Israel. Which is it? It's all of them. Comes before Jesus in the Bible, it points forward to Jesus. That's the rule. Comes after the cross, it's pointing back to the cross. The cross is the center of all of this. Now, we have this same temptation in our lives. The lust of the flesh is one of the, the favorite tactics, I believe, of the enemy in our particular culture right now, just so long as it's not really identified as the lust of the flesh, but as something good. Something you desire, affirm it. Whatever the case, if you feel it, if you think it, if you want it, if you desire it, it's in you. It must have been put there by God, and therefore it's good. So take it and run with it and love it. There's no way it comes from the world or the flesh or the devil. God must have put it there. And so act independently of him. It's the same temptation. And yet scripture says, no, don't affirm everything you find in yourself. Mortify your flesh. Deny yourself. Take up the cross and follow Jesus. The end of the day, what sustains you when you are in the wilderness, so to speak, when you've had the worst day you can imagine and you come home and you're just wrecked? Is it the things of the world? Is it the appetites of the flesh? Or is it every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? The second temptation comes in verse 5. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If then you will worship me, it will be yours. This is what we call the lust of the eyes. Look at this and covet it and want it and be willing to do what you have to for it. And when I read this, of course, the first thought is, how did he, how did he do this? How did Satan show him all the splendors of the world in a moment? I mean, is there a place where you can see all the, the pyramids of Egypt and the, the wonders of the Greco-Roman world and the mysteries of the Orient and even the, the cities of gold the Mayans were already building on the other side of the globe? No. And in a moment? The Talmud tells us that a moment is 1 58,884th of an hour. That's a moment. And I got the same thing. Yeah. No, I don't know where they get this. I have no idea. But it's about 0.06 seconds, and it's just quick, 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 quick. And undoubtedly, that's what is on the mind of the evangelist as he writes this down. It seems to me that what's going on here is a spiritual vision. There's twice in Ezekiel where he's said to be set upon a high mountain to see a vision, and it's a spiritual vision. This is what John Calvin also said. He said, I wouldn't debate this with anyone, but I believe this is a spiritual thing that he's seeing in the spirit. So it's almost like the devil, or it's exactly like the devil, is putting a picture in his mind for a moment. And that almost seems kind of weird and blasphemous to say, right? That the devil has placed this picture in the mind of Christ, the Savior, and yet isn't that essentially what temptation is? A thought, an impulse, an image, something that you want for a moment. And for that to have happened with Christ, it does not mean that he sinned. To t be tempted is not to sin. If you do not dwell on it, if you do not act on it, you have not sinned. 
Now, the enemy will come and tempt us, and we will stand up under temptation, and he'll still come back around with shame. I can't believe you even wanted that. Wow, what's wrong with you? But don't listen to that nonsense. Remind yourself, Jesus was even tempted. It means he actually wanted for a moment to do these things. If he didn't, what does temptation even mean? The category loses all meaning. Another question that might come up with this second temptation is, was this his to give? Does it even make sense? Does he have the authority to give Jesus all the kingdoms on earth? Is he right when he says they've all been given to him and they're his to give to whom he will? Well, yes and no. Scripture calls Satan the god of this world. He's the prince of this world. And yet Christ, having created it, and Christ who will redeem the the world, is, is certainly in all authority over the world. Why then did he not just answer him like, that makes no sense. You don't have the authority to do that. Your, your, your forked tongue is writing checks that your, your hoofed feet can't cash or something like that. Well, why bother? Right? I mean, we're reading John 8. Jesus says, when Satan lies, he is speaking his native tongue because he's the father of lies. There's always some truth mixed in with the lie. Take, eat this. It's good. For you will not surely die. You will become like God, knowing good and evil. There's some truth in there, and there's some lie in there. Satan's not going to... Have you ever gotten into an argument with a liar, a deceiver? What a waste of time. And Jesus is not about to do that. Instead, he draws the sword of the Spirit, and he stabs one more time. And this was, even though it's mixed in with a lie, it's a very real temptation for Christ, because what it does is it sets up a road with no cross. He says, here, you come and you have my blessing. Take all that I have. Just don't die on the cross. It sets up an easier road, a road to luxury, and all it costs is one little bow, one little genuflect. No one out here, no one will see, no one will know but you and me. It's the easy way. And Jesus does not give in. His response is to quote Deuteronomy 6.13. You notice that they're all from Deuteronomy. i got to wonder if maybe it's worth studying Deuteronomy, even though it's boring. Jesus has answers from Deuteronomy for each of these temptations. And he says to him, uh, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This is from Deuteronomy 6, and it's a, a passage about idolatry. And we see here that, that Jesus, his character as he models for us how to walk in faith is to always be completely about submitting to the will of God while the enemy is always about the opposite, imposing our will upon God and and rebelling against God and his will and his ways. In Matthew, of course, this is the last temptation, and Jesus says, Away from me, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God only, and him shall you serve. But the fact that, that... there is even a passage about idolatry tells us something, a very sobering reality that any time we take part in idolatry, any time we, we say this is more important than God or we even live like this is more important than God, we are in some way, on some level, taking part in devil worship. Right? I mean, none of you would go home this afternoon and sacrifice like a goat to Beelzebub, the Dark Lord, and most of you wouldn't, but we might go home and take part in some light, playful idolatry, just a little genuflect, just a little moment, and no one knows, and yet we find here that in Jesus' eyes, this is deadly serious. We have this temptation, 
to, to say, yeah, I will even follow Jesus, and yet in a way that bypasses the cross, in a way that, that never dethrones mammon or, or physical gratification or my own glory or whatever my idol is. I just add on to that the name of Jesus. You know, there's one other time in the, in the scriptures when Jesus says, away from me, Satan, or, or behind me, Satan. And that's when his uh, disciple Peter, one of his best buddies, is walking with him, and he's just given him an attaboy for having a really good right answer about who Jesus is. And then he says, all right, you're ready to hear this. And he explains how he has to go to Jerusalem and be rejected and, and be put to death. And, and then on the third day rise again, and Peter says, no way. You're the son of God. It's one of these first-class conditionals. Let's assume that we're all correct here and you are the son of God. You shouldn't die on a cross. You shouldn't be killed. You should conquer. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you have in mind the things of man and not the things of God. You're imposing your will on God's plan. And it's become very popular, I think, to give in to this lust of the eyes to, to be able to, to say, I'm a Christian and I affirm the, the truths of historic Christianity, and yet what drives me is getting more stuff. In fact, that's part of the religion now. God wants to bless me with more and more and more. I will be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, and have a, a great name, and every day will be a Friday, and it'll all be the best, but no cost and no cross. In any Christianity, without trials, without persecution, without self-denial, and without a cross is a lie from the devil. No man can serve two masters. He will love one and hate the other. The third temptation comes in verses 9 through 11. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." Again, in the other uh, Gospels, this is the second temptation. I think Luke puts it third because his thrust is always toward Jerusalem throughout the entire Gospel, and so it's just an artistic choice he's making in telling the story. But all the same, where he brings him is to what they call the pinnacle of the temple. It's the east wall of the temple looking down into the Kidron Valley. It's 450 feet high, 40 stories plus, and you can see practically forever Josephus calls it a dizzying height when he's describing Jerusalem and the temple. I will take his word for it. I would not want to go up there. But why is it important that he brings him to this place? Because long before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there was a rabbinical saying that when King Messiah is revealed, he will stand on the roof of the holy place. So he brings him there, whatever. It's up for debate if this is a vision as well or, or what's going on. It seems to me that it can't be if it's a real temptation. And he says, throw yourself off. And then he throws a little scripture in there. You will be caught. You will be miraculous. You will be immediately everyone's favorite guy. This is what we call the temptation of the pride of life. A shortcut to glory for himself. And when he comes in and quotes scripture, that tells us that anytime someone uses scripture in their argument or to try and convince you of something, it's not necessarily true. The enemy, the devil himself, can quote scripture. But notice how he does it. First of all, he does not quote it in context. Remember I told you the three rules of Bible interpretation are context, context, and context. He breaks all three rules here. 
There's no context to it, and he pulls it way out of the intended meaning to turn it into a proof text for something wicked. We see this every single day. We've got to become, once again, more like the Bereans who search God's word to see if these things are true. They don't just accept whatever we read or hear or see taught. So there's no context. Uh, Paul Washer has this great little quote where he, he says, people are continually pulling out of context their favorite, the world's favorite passage, which is, judge not lest ye be judged. And their meaning of it is, you can't ever judge anything right or wrong or, or anything because I've got this kryptonite for you. And whenever someone says to him, out of context, judge not lest ye be judged, he says, twist not scripture lest you be like Satan. And that is what Satan is doing here. He's, he's, he's twisting and he leaves something out. Notice there's this and. This is like when you're reading a book and there's a passage of scripture and there's an ellipsis in there, the dot, 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 and you go, I wonder what that said. What did you leave out of this passage? Sometimes it's just a list of 12 really hard to pronounce names or something, and you find that and you go, okay, the meaning is intact. Sometimes they leave out something important, and Satan leaves out something important. Four words, in all thy ways. And that, combined with the context of the passage, changes the meaning entirely. In fact, it's just two words in the Hebrew, and he, and he leaves these out. That, that Psalm, Psalm 91, begins with that famous passage, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will live in the shadow of the Almighty. That is the ways in which you are protected. In the shelter of the Most High, in the shadow of the Almighty. And Satan's saying, step out of that shelter, step out of that shadow, throw yourself willy-nilly off of this high point, not in all thy ways, in all his ways, but in all my ways, tell him he still has to protect you, to send angels to, to catch you so that you will not be squashed when you land. Just leaving out a little part like that. Careful when you are encountering this kind of thing. Be careful when you encounter a book where every scripture seems to be from a different Bible version. Ever notice that? Sometimes it'll say, well, the most faithful rendering, I think, is this, and here's why. And you go, okay, that makes sense. Sometimes you just go, why is this person bouncing all around? This one's ESV, this one's NIV, and then they get to the weird ones, like the, the Web Bible. This one's Young's Literal Translation, 1862. And you go, what, what are you doing? Well, they're finding the wording that makes the point that they have already decided to make, rather than following God's word and making the, that point on God's behalf. We must be careful about that. We start leaving little things out, and soon we're leaving bigger things out, right? And soon we, we have a Christianity that says, well, you know, we'll talk about resurrection, but not the resurrection. We'll talk about forgiveness, but not repentance. And we'll leave out the cross. That's just a little part, right, of the whole story. And before long, grace becomes, well, everyone makes mistakes, and God loves you anyway. A cheap grace, which is blasphemy. And Jesus' response does not fall into this. Instead of testing God, he tests the spirits, as John will tell us to do a little later. He says, let's see how you handled that scripture, and let's see if it comports with the rest of scripture. And so he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The context of that passage is Messiah, when they were for 40 years wandering in the wilderness, and again, the 40 days and the 40 years, yes, they are connected as they're wandering, the Israelites, they come to a place called Massah. There is no water there. And the people begin to say, is Yahweh with us? Is he among us or not? 
Because if he really is with us, and he really is God, and he really is powerful, and he really is good, he will give us the water that we want right now and right here. Well, Jesus, being God in the flesh, God the Son, is submitting to the will of the Father and modeling for us the opposite attitude. This is, I don't tell God what to do, God tells me what to do. I can't put him to the test. We all have this temptation as well. And I think we often come at it a little more pious than the Israelites, saying, well, he's got to prove it to us. No, we come at it in that satanic way, right? The first-class conditional. Well, assuming you are the God that I've always thought you were, the God that I was taught you were, well, then you're able to do this, and you're going to want to do this, and you'd better do this. Otherwise, I'm going to start having second doubts about your character. There's a difference between coming boldly to the throne of grace and coming with presumption that God will bend to our will rather than coming in submission to his. And I even heard these kind of stories told with pride from the pulpit. I told God he'd better do this as if that's how faith looks. I'm jumping off the top of this thing and you'd better catch me. That's become a rather popular image, actually. If your faith isn't that kind of reckless, crazy, throw myself off the roof and say, Lord, catch me or I'm going to go splat, then it's not worth anything. Well, there's a presumption there. We have to be so careful not to test God, not to go beyond what his word says. We do this so often where we say, God, you've got to bail me out here at every turn. Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil, we pray. Well, we go to the very place where we know we will be tempted with the sin that is our besetting sin. Or back into the same company, the same people that we know are going to bring us back into that same mindset. Thinking the same thoughts that always lead us into temptation. And yet saying, God, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Or we pray, Lord you got to protect my health. I can't do anything for you. I can't do anything for my family. I can't do anything if I'm, if I'm not healthy. Lord, heal me and help me and, and keep me healthy. And uh, Hold on a second, Lord. Yeah, I'll have 16 Big Macs and bacon fries and all this other stuff. We're testing God. Or we say, Lord, raise my children up. Protect them so that they'll be spiritual giants when they become adults. That, they, that my kids will just love Jesus and, and, and they'll do such good things and they won't fall into lives of sin and yet we don't bring them regularly to church and if we do we don't talk about faith at home and we don't have any family uh, bible reading or 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 even any discussion or prayer together of course your children aren't going to grow up to be spiritual giants if that's the setting or we say lord give me pure thoughts but the same mind in me that was in christ jesus i want to i want to be holy and then we start dumping trash into our minds. And like, all right, I'm going to play the video game where you're, you're robbing and raping and murdering and, and, and put my, my mind open in that setting, asking God to keep it pure. That is essentially taking a header off the roof of the temple saying, catch me, Lord, it's on you. If you really are God, you're going to have to save me in this way. You're going to have to stop me from hamstringing my own spiritual walk and development. When I was in first grade, my teacher had a baby, and for six weeks we had a substitute. She was kind of mean. Thinking back, she probably wasn't that mean. We were just terrible. And we thought, oh, a substitute? The same substitute? We're going to own this lady. Her name was Mrs. Knopp. She pronounced the K. And one day, she stood up. She was a big lady. She stood up, and her eyes were just on, you know, you see the flames, like the anime eyes. And we all sensed the shift in the room and the drop in temperature. 
And she said, that is the last time you test me. And you know what? That was the last time we tested her because we got the relationship straight, that she tested us. She was our teacher. We didn't test her. She was in authority over us. Now imagine, rather than being the teacher with all these snot-nosed kids, you're God of the universe, and your very creatures are testing you. What a foolish temptation we allow ourselves to fall into. But Jesus didn't fall. He was victorious at every turn. And at the end, again, I, I do think that probably chronologically the last temptation was away from me, Away from me, for it is written, you will serve the Lord your God and, and bow before him only. And, and the, the devil leaves him. He, he runs away. And it's easy for us to say, well, it probably wasn't that hard for Jesus. Because he's God. You fall into one of these formal heresies that was condemned really early on. In fact, in 451 at the Council of Chalcedon, what we just read. Where we say, well, yeah, he was man, but also mixed in there was a bunch of God, and that probably made him temptation-proof, and he barely even felt it. It was like a shell around his humanity. That's the kind of stuff that would have gotten you excommunicated 1,500 years ago. Now it just makes you confused and an easy target for the enemy. No, Jesus felt the temptation. As we read in Hebrews 4, he was tempted in all ways as we are. In all ways as we are, he was tempted, yet he remained without sin. He did not give in to temptation. Notice, though, that when the enemy left him, he did not leave him permanently. He left him until an opportune time. Once again, just for a season. The, the lack of any kind of anything. I mean, just what, what a loser. He lives for a time because the enemy will always lose the battle to win the war. Anytime that's a chance. And so I imagine what the opportune time is, most people assume, is Gethsemane and perhaps also the cross itself, where he still cannot find any way to cause Jesus to turn away from the will of the Father and to sin against him. Recognize, though, that we are not Christ. We cannot overcome sin in ourselves. Because when we try to, we're trying to overcome sin in the old Adam, the old Eve. And remember, Adam and Eve fell embarrassingly quickly to a talking snake. Come on. We cannot overcome temptation by our own willpower, by our own training up in good habits, by our own sense of right and wrong, by giving up the right thing for Lent and, and kind of through discipline, just doing this sort of thing. Now, Scripture does tell us, Paul says, I, I punish, my, I beat my body into submission. And what he means is I am relentless in fighting against the flesh, but it has to be in the spirit. It can't be from our own strength, our own reserves. Remember, St. James says, let no man say when he is tempted that God is tempting me. God can't be tempted by evil. Neither will he tempt anyone. But God does allow us to be tempted. And this is good news, too, because if God were tempting us, we would fall every time. But if God is strengthening us and holding us up in temptation so that we become more like Christ, then we never need to fall. And I think we need to be more aware of the enemy at work. There's two extremes in the church we have to avoid. One is a morbid over-interest in kind of things spiritual, especially demonic, and exorcisms, and demons, and weird stuff. The other extreme is to kind of think of those as all silly old categories that we never think up. It's all very cerebral, and it's about patterns of behavior. 
We need to recognize that there is a supernatural world. There is an enemy who would love to take the world from without and squeeze you into its mold to take your sin nature from within and pump it up against the, the lusting against the spirit. And we have to be aware and on guard. I was hearing Adrian Rogers preach the other day on the radio. Remember him? He's with the Lord now, but he was the head of the Southern Baptist Convention. He was a seminary professor, a preacher, a wonderful preacher. Southern Baptist in the sense that he had all those weird, like, Southern colloquialisms, like, you know, about bullfrogs and stuff. And you're like, I, from the context, I know what that means, but I don't really know why it means that. Well, he was preaching on, on a similar topic, and he said, when he's tempted, remembering what Jesus said, get away from me, Satan, he'll often just say that out loud. Even walking down the hall in his school, he'd be tempted by pride or lust or whatever, and he would just say, get away from me, Satan, get behind me, Satan. And he said some of his students would say to him, you sound crazy when you do that. And some of his other students would say, aren't you sort of praying to Satan when you do that? And you know what his answer was? I'm not praying to a cat when I tell it scat. You gotta love Southern Baptists. Just... I'm not going to have the debate, just like Jesus. I'm not going to get into a protracted, because once you start getting into that, there's going to be rationalizing and compromising and all these things that dull the sharp edge of God's word. Rather, we should just say, in the name of Jesus, go to hell. In fact, that's the only time that's the right thing to say, when the devil is tempting you. I got no time for this. I'm not going to have the discussion. I'm not going to dwell on this temptation. If, if temptation is a flash into my mind by the enemy, I'm going to clear it out, and then I'm going to dwell on things that are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. I'm going to think on these things. I'm going to dwell on God's holy word and fill my mind instead with that. And remember uh, Psalm 119, I have, I have put your, your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Slamming the door in the face of temptation and fleeing to the cross where I will be built up. And remember, after Jesus sent Satan running, we read that angels came and ministered to him. And the other side of temptation, whether we fall or whether we stand, we need to go to him and worship and be built back up and remember why it is that our God is God. There was a great quote that I encountered this week. I put it on Facebook. It was by uh, Robert McShane. And he said, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Scripture tells us that's true. He is making intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. We can't hear Him, but we know He is. How then can we think the enemy should be able to lead us astray? How can we be talked into turning from him by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life? Distance makes no difference. He is praying for us. Let me close again with the words from Hebrews chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive and find grace to help in time of need. Lord God, we pray that we would indeed come with confidence to your throne of grace, so that we would find your mercy and your grace 
to help us when we are tempted, when we are frazzled, when we are hungry, angry, lonely, tired, when we are at our weakest and the enemy comes to try and make us fall. Lord, we pray that we would remember Jesus endured temptation. Jesus endured the cross. Jesus rose again all on our behalf. And now we need not have a protracted debate with the enemy, with the flesh that dwells within us, the old Adam, the old Eve, with the world and its wickedness and its false and and evil systems. Lord, Lord, we need only slam the door and return to you for sweet communion, knowing that we are forgiven when we fall, we are strengthened when we stand, and that, Lord, you are at work in us. and, And having begun a good work in us, you will see it through to completion. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.